Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Now I'm asking Holy Spirit, you'd come and you'd speak to us truth from the scripture over this very tender topic, the issue of sex and human sexuality. So we're looking into this issue of marriage that you've, you've given us as a, a declaration of your love for your people. as a picture of how we will spend eternity with you in intimacy. Lord, I pray, speak to us this morning as we talk about the sexual relationship in marriage. Now come, Holy Spirit, we love you. Oh, I thank you for your presence. You are the teacher, so instruct our hearts this morning. Lord, stand with me here and hold my hand. Let me speak as an oracle this morning, I pray. Good, in Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Okay, well, as I said, we're on our eighth part of a series we've been doing, The Glory of Marriage. And so this morning, I'm going to talk about uh, the glory of sex and the sexual relationship in marriage. And, uh, you know, this is a topic I wrestled with, um, you know, just in private and in prayer with the Lord. And, and I really said, you know, Lord, I don't want to be that guy who's got the big sex message. Uh, it's just not really what I want to be known for. And, um, but the more I prayed about it, I really felt strongly that the Holy Spirit was saying, you know, you need to declare these things because there's so uh, little being said about sex uh, in church. For instance, when was the last time on a Sunday morning you heard a message on sex? I went back in my mind and thought, I've never heard a message on sex on Sunday morning. Well, the, the challenge then is this, that because there's been very little instruction and revelation on the issue of sex and, and human sexuality, uh, several things have happened. Number one, uh, primarily people in the church think of sex as a bad thing. As soon as you say sex uh, or sexual or sexuality, as soon as you say any of that, people blush. They feel embarrassed. And uh, we just kind of have this, this taboo feeling about this issue of sex. And so sex is a bad thing for uh, most believers, especially single believers, because all we ever say to singles and young people is, uh, don't have sex. And we really nail the uh, issue of sexual sin, usually with an anger. Usually it's nailed from the pulpit with kind of an anger edge on it. And, and so then what ends up happening is it creates a bunch of problems for people. And um, most people think of sex as something you stay away from before marriage. That's the, the main conversation that the church has had about sex. And so it creates a few problems because um, we're so focused on telling people of the dangers of sex, they don't have any picture for the uh, beauty of it and the intimacy of it. For instance... I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've sat with people in premarital counseling and we will sit with, we'll do six hours of premarital counseling with, with couples uh, that are going to get married. And we always do one on communication. We always do one on finances and vision. And then we always do one on the sexual relationship and marriage. Well, I mean, oftentimes when we get to doing the, the premarital on the sexual relationship and marriage, I mean, it is like a pink elephant walked in the room. And, and so often, uh, you know, you got these two sweet Christians, and, and they'll be virgins. And, and then you just want to start to talk to them about sex. 
And they are like white knuckled and freaking out because all they've ever heard is sex is bad, don't have sex. And so here's what we're doing in the church. We're telling people don't have sex, sex is bad, flee sexual immorality, which I, I appreciate that. We do flee sexual immorality. But we, that's our main conversation. So what happens is people go from fleeing sexual immorality, fleeing sexual immorality to I'm going to get married and I'm going on my honeymoon. And from, you know, at the drop of a hat, they go from fleeing sexual immorality to I'm going to be married having sex tomorrow and nobody's even said anything to me about it. And I, I'm sat, I've sat there with couples and thought, whew, this is difficult because of uh, the way that the, we've allowed the conversation to be in the church and so a lot of young couples uh, are in shock over that point that they've got to go from fleeing sexual immorality to having sex. And so for newlyweds and young couples, I tell them two things. I say, number one, don't get your doctrine about sex from the movies. Praise the Lord. I say it's not like the movies. And the movies are false they're, they're promoting a false image of what sex and sexuality is all about. It's something that's been stolen. Um, I think that the narrative about sex has been stolen because the church has remained silent. And so then what you see in the movies, uh, it's a completely uh, false picture. I said, you know, I tell young people that are, you know, young couples that are going to get married. I said, in the movies, nobody ever has bad breath. It's never too hot or too cold in the room. Nobody ever smells bad. There's all sorts of natural features about the human sexual relationship that uh, you have to work through that they'll never give you in the movies. All they do is present a picture that tries to allure people into a false trapping uh, of sex. And so I said, number one, don't get your doctrine of sex from the movies. And I said, number two, sex is not like uh, Mozart. Which What that means is this. I said, if I was to roll a grand piano right here, roll it in the room, and you've never taken piano lessons, and I put a piece of Mozart music down in front of you and said, play that, you would not be able to play that on day one. In fact, it would take you many, many years to learn how to play Mozart well. I said, the Lord has created sex in a way that it's something you grow into, and it becomes beautiful over time. But it's not something that you're going to be able to be, you know, stellar at. And so initially, so I take the pressure off of people. I say, don't worry about it. This is something God wants you to go on a journey of discovery with. It's something beautiful the Lord has made. And it's something you're going to get to grow in with your spouse forever. And, you know, maybe in 10 years, it'll be Mozart right now. It's going to be chopsticks, but that's okay. A lot of people like chopsticks. It's a pretty, pretty popular little song. I try to take the pressure off because though sex is something that's private, it's something that God made and something that uh, everybody who's married experiences. In fact, every human, I don't want to make you feel awkward, but every person, the person sitting next to you is a testimony of somebody having sex. I don't know if you've actually thought about that. I mean, don't have to think about that a lot, but it is. It's true. God links... Think about it now. Links procreation to the sexual relationship. Now, obviously, the Lord's not embarrassed. He's not embarrassed. And so we are hung up on uh, sex because, I think primarily because the church uh, has been silent about it. And because we've been silent, 
the narrative has been stolen and redefined by the world and rewritten. And sex is considered something primarily that's dirty or perverse or obscene or whatever. And I don't ever think that's what God's intention was. Many are in fear about sex because we've allowed them to get their ideas from the world, from TV, from movies, from music, or the internet. And because the church's whole message has been, stay away from sex. I asked my uh, 10-year-old, my son just turned 10, and uh, I'm crazy like that, but I, I have the sex talk with my kids at 10. And the reason why is I don't want them to be out playing uh, football in the street with some 13-year-olds, and all of a sudden they start getting ideas from you know some guy that's not saved, who doesn't know God, who's got little you know, tidbits of information and all of a sudden their, their mind gets flooded with fantasy and, and partial thoughts. So what do I do? I, at 10, I beat everybody to the punch and I sit down with my children on their, on their 10th birthday and I say, okay, let's talk about this. What do you know about sex? And my son, uh, who just turned 10, he goes, I know it's bad. <laughs> I go, okay, let's start there. Which totally illustrates my main concern. If we have Christian young people growing up believing that sex is only bad, then it creates a lot of fear or it creates a lot of fantasy. Because they, you know, it's this thing that's this, un, you know, this forbidden thing, but you know, they, all of a sudden there's wonder that builds in them and, and all of a sudden that gives uh, opportunity for lusts to, to be birthed in them and because nobody wants to talk about it and it's something bad. Well, you and I both know that if you bring the law, that the law shows us our sin, Right? And so if, if all we ever do is drop uh, the law on the issue of sex, it's going to create and arouse sin in the majority of us. And that's why I think we've got such a problem with sexual promiscuity because we haven't had teaching and instruction from the pulpit in the church with revelation of the knowledge of God and the issue of sex and the sexual relationship. And so I want to just address it. I just want to come straight forward with it. And, and be bold about it. And like I said, I'm not going to be lewd or, or crass, but we've got to say some of this because, so that uh, this thing gets uh, some clarity on it. Now, as I said, I think the world has stolen the narrative. I think most uh, people, even older people, even people that are married, still have this mentality about sex and sexuality that it's perverse. Of course, there's a lot of perversion in the world, but... Um, I think what ends up happening is this, that because there's, it's been stolen, because the narrative has been rewritten, because the world has defined what sex and sexuality and what pleasure is and those things, that what's happened is the narrative on sex has been rewritten without God in the picture. And so then humanity thinks of sex as something that God's not involved with. In fact, if you're going to be uh, involved with sex, most people would think that's something God is completely opposed to. God's against sex. In fact, uh, you know, historically, some of the the church uh, fathers and, and mystics, ancient mystics, they said, you know, sex is only something to be practiced if you're if you're trying to have babies. And if you're, uh, if you're going to have sex, you, you should only do it if you're going to get pregnant. And, and if you're going to have sex, it can't be any fun. And I thought, woo, those guys have never had sex, <laughs> clearly. Because they're trying to tell people to have sex without it, without it being enjoyable. 
which is the exact opposite of the way the Lord made it. The Lord created sex. Hold on to your seats. He created sex. He created the sex drive. He created the body. He created the sex organs. He created the nerve endings. The Lord did that on purpose, beloved. And he did it so that sex would, sex would be pleasurable. And so what I'm saddened over is the fact that the world has stolen this issue of sex and sexuality and has rewritten it so that people think that well, God is not God is outside of sex and that sex is something that, that men practice, human, human, mankind practices, I mean. And, uh, and so then people in rebellion to God, they flaunt their sexuality. They flaunt their perversion. And, and they imagine that God is as far away from sexuality as he could possibly be. And this has caused our society to be overrun with sexual images. And, and, and I mean, there's all sorts of things that they're just cramming down our throat that have sexual innuendo on them because they imagine this is as far from God as you can get. I, I really feel like the over-sexualization of our society um, is really a, 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 it's a, a plan of the enemy. It's a plan of the Antichrist spirit. And the, the, the writing of the narrative to say that God is not involved with sexuality, that's, a, that's a, an attack against the knowledge of God. And so here's where we're at now in our society. We're in a society that embraces sexual sin as norm. Now think about this. God created sex. God created the sexual relationship. But we live in a society now where sex is practiced in a sinful manner, in an improper manner, and many in our society accept that as norm. For instance, fornication is accepted as normal in many, many, many places in our society. In fact, even in the church, they just sort of, many churches just sort of wink at the issue of fornication. Adultery, if, if people hear of a politician or a uh, sports figure or an entertainer who's in adultery, you just kind of take it for granted. Yeah, I mean, that's what, that's what you know, uh, entertainers and, and athletes do. They just kind of have multiple partners. Adultery has become accepted as norm. We barely even flinch at that. Homosexuality. Now think about this. Fornication, adultery, homosexuality is now considered an alternate lifestyle. And now homosexual marriage is legal and there's this major outcry right now in our society that if you don't think that homosexuality is an alternative lifestyle, you're just off, you're just wrong and all that. This is because the church has lost the narrative. God created this thing and God created it to be good and the church needed to be and we need to be still proclaiming the truth of God in sex so it doesn't get stolen and rewritten by the world. And I think this I think unless the church will step forward and declare truths about sex, it's going to continue to get rewritten. And there's several things. There's five things that the, the scripture identifies as improper. I'll lay those out for you in a minute. But if this thing continues, if the church continues to allow the, the narrative on sex to get rewritten by the world, all the stuff the scripture says is improper in sexuality is going to be considered the norm in society. Because they're stealing the narrative and they're practicing it in rebellion to God. So, what does God say about sex? There's a lot in the scripture, surprisingly, because there's a little 
percentage of preaching on it, but there's actually a fair amount in the scripture about it. One thing that I was recognizing is uh, Revelation 9, verse 21, says there's four chief sins at the end of the age that people will not repent of. They hold them so dear to themselves, and one of those is sexual immorality. And so the church has got to have revelation on sex because where this is headed, we're heading into a society that will not let go their perverse ideas of, of sexuality. So what does God say about it? Well, Hebrews 13, 4, it's a verse that I'm sure many of you know. We've touched on it here already in the series. Marriage is honorable among all, or let marriage be honored by all. That's another way it's, it's translated. And the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. That's the New King James. Here's the New American Standard. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Now this is interesting because the Lord says that the marriage bed, in other words, he's talking about the sexual relationship inside of marriage. He says that sexual relationship, it's pure. It's set apart. It's holy. It's undefiled. It's not perverse. It's undefiled. Inside the, the constraints of marriage, the, the marriage bed is undefiled. It's pure. It's a good thing. Now God says, let's not introduce fornication and adultery to it because that would defile it. But inside the constraints of, of marriage, sexuality is pure. It's good. There needs to be more communication on this point. That sex is something good to be held inside of marriage. That's, that's an okay thing for single people to get. Sex is something good to be held inside of marriage. God made it. Now, as I said, there's five activities that the Bible identifies as improper sexual activities. And I think this speaks specifically to what he's saying here in Hebrews 13. He says the marriage bed is, is undefiled. Let it remain that way is the idea. So then we don't introduce these five things into the marriage bed. And here's what they are. I'm not going to go through the verses that, that identify them, but they're, they're pretty clear. Leviticus lays it out pretty clearly. The five sexual activities the Bible identifies as improper are fornication, which is sex outside of marriage, adultery, which is sex with somebody who is marriage, homosexuality, which is sex between people of the uh, uh, same gender, incest, which would be sex with a family member, and bestiality, eh, sex with an animal. Those are the five things the scripture identifies as outlawed. Now what's interesting to me is, the Lord's saying that the marriage bed is undefiled. He gives us the five things that he says are defiling. Well, that creates this. That creates an incredible time for young couples to be able to, to find out what is the bliss and the pleasure in sex. What is the purity and, and the beauty of this intimate sexual relationship that the Lord has created? You keep these five things out, and then there's a whole uh, you know, wonderful journey of discovery that a young couple gets to, gets to you know, experience. And so instead of it being all about sex is bad, don't do sex, yuck on sex... I think the church needs to actually focus on what's the uh, positive of this thing that God created. Now, 
And under those five areas of uh, improper activity in sex, there's other things that fall under there. For instance, uh, Jesus identified fantasizing on, you know, sexual immorality is the same as committing it. So you can't fantasize, uh, you know, that's why internet pornography is a sin. You're fantasizing on fornication. You're fantasizing on lewd behavior, and improper behavior. Um, something like pedophilia would fall under fornication, obviously. We don't, you know, just because it doesn't explicitly identify you can't have sex with children, we know that it falls under those other categories. So God gives guidelines. He says, here's what you stay away from. He says, inside the confines of marriage, this thing is beautiful and pure and undefiled. And so then we go, okay, Lord, what is your mentality on sex? And as I've hammered, I'm just burdened because the world has stolen the narrative and and we need to get God's narrative on it. And so let's think about this. God creates it. He creates the sex drive. He ties it into our emotions it's a physical, emotional, and spiritual thing when, when uh, two people who love one another in the, in the confines of marriage um, engage in sex. It's, it's something that, that transcends uh, your whole being. So for God to create it, for God to make it something that's pleasure-filled, for God to give us guidelines for it, then God clearly has thoughts and plans about it. And uh, here's the thing. As is the case with everything that God's made, I believe the chief purpose in sex is as a a declaration of the knowledge of God. Yes, even sex declares truths about the knowledge of God. In fact, I think it's the chief reason that God made sex, to declare about himself. Now think about how far off that idea is from the common perception of sex. But I think scripturally, we can actually see this really, really clearly. Now, uh, flip over with me to Proverbs 5. Little side note, I don't care if you don't amen. I understand you probably don't want to be the person amening loudly about the sex stuff. Totally fine with me. You know, if I were to say, man, God made sex good, you don't want to be the guy, Amen! It's, I, I get it. I'm, I'm secure. So Proverbs 5, the Lord's giving the young man instruction about how to keep his way pure, stay away from the adulterous woman. And then he gives him instruction on how to relate to his wife. And for any that have heard teachings that say sex isn't supposed to be pleasurable, the the reason why I'm actually addressing this is because, yes, I mentioned ancient mystics taught that you aren't supposed to have uh, sex except for uh, to have babies. And if you have sex, it's not supposed to be pleasurable. There's actually still, I know some of you aren't going to believe this. There's some of you, it's stunning to me. There's still teaching in the church that sex should not be pleasurable. Yes, in 2010 plus, this year, 2011, there's still teaching in the church that sex should not be pleasurable. It should only be for procreation. In fact, there's cultures in the earth that uh, essentially forbid uh, pleasure in sex. Now, Proverbs 5 is really, really clear. Look at verse 18. 
Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Verse 19. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. The NIV and the NA, and New American Standards say, let her be, let, uh, be uh, captivated with her love. Be enraptured with her love. That doesn't sound like the Lord saying, don't have uh, pleasure in sex. It sounds like the Lord's saying, no, this is gonna, something that you're going to really enjoy if you do it the right way. If you, you do it within the confines of, that I've given. If you, if you do it within the bonds that I've given. You do it the way that I've directed it to be done. He, he goes, I want you to enjoy this. Be satisfied with your wife. Delighted in her. Be exhilarated uh, in, in, in the act of, of, of the sexual relationship. He goes, I want you to, to be enraptured with this thing. And so... Sex at times can, can be seen as this thing that man has initiated and man has created and man has come up with a, a, a way to have pleasure that, that, they, that they manufacture and experience without God. That's completely false. God created and he created it to be good. It is an emotional, physical, spiritual interaction that God has made for us to enjoy inside of marriage. Now look at Ephesians 5. Because I, I boggled one day when I was teaching the bridal paradigm. And I began to say, Lord, yes, I see it. Everything you've given us in marriage, everything you've given us in marriage speaks of our relationship with you. The intimacy and the love and the interchange of, of, of our hearts and laying down my life for you. I get it, Lord. Marriage, I get it. It's, it's a picture of Jesus and, and his bride. Yes, Lord. I was just, I was soaring on it. And then I went, yes, everything in marriage. I see it. And I go, wait a minute. What about sex? Like, what is that speaking of? Because I don't get that. Because I know we're not going to be having, you know, this is kind of a rough way to say it, but we're not going to be having sex with God. So what is that? Why would you make this? And why would you create a drive and, and humans for this, and why would you make it something that's enjoyable? I, I just couldn't get it. I, I, I said, I, I don't understand you, Lord. I mean, I'm glad you made it, and it's fun, but uh, what are you doing? And the Lord began to speak to my heart and, and take me on a journey in the Word that I didn't expect. And, uh, and He just took me right back to the, the standard Scriptures, ones that I already loved, and he just began to speak to my heart on this issue of what his purpose and plan for sex was and, and why he made sex the way he did. And so Ephesians 5, 32, Paul summarizing the whole subject of marriage. And he says, the mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. And so we can derive there from that verse that whatever's going on in the marital relationship is a picture of Christ in the church. Whether it's the communication factor, the intimacy factor, becoming one. And certainly that speaks of the sexual relationship in marriage. So I go, Lord, wow. So you're speaking of Christ in the church, even in the sexual relationship. I, I don't quite get that, uh, but speak to me more. And so flip over to Psalm 16. It's not rocket science. It's actually fairly simple. 
But man, it's rewriting the script about what the purpose of sex was even about. Psalm 16. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. That's the New American Standard. Here's the New King James. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I thought, you know, I don't know that we really have a picture of pleasures that are available and that we will experience forever in the throne room. In fact, the word pleasure is a word that's pretty much been stolen by the world. We've pretty much thought if it's pleasurable, it's sin. If it's boring, it's God. Think about how boring people think God is. People think heaven's going to be boring, beloved. Believers think heaven is going to be boring. You know what I would do if I was the devil? I would tell everybody that heaven is going to be the most boring place ever. You don't really want to go there. A bunch of fat babies floating on clouds, wearing togas, playing harps, singing songs. You don't even want to sing to a God that doesn't even, he's not even, he's not even likable. Boo on heaven. He's boring and heaven's boring. It'll be boring forever. That's exactly what I would do if I was the enemy. And I'll tell you, that's exactly what the enemy's done. The enemy has stolen the term pleasures. He's stolen the term excitement, joy, wonder, bliss, all these things until we we have been brainwashed, even in the church, and we believe heaven's going to be boring. Come on now, you can say amen to that. Psalm 16 verse 11 is real clear. Heaven is going to be exhilarating. Heaven is going to be off the charts. Heaven is going to be pleasures evermore. All your pleasure centers in your being are going to be on 10 all the time. Fullness of joy. You know, I think the best we get in on this side is a bit happy. Won the lottery? Yeah! I think you're a bit happy compared to fullness of joy in his presence. This, all we ever get on this side is a shadow. Isn't that right? It's all a shadow. And it's all speaking of a greater truth that will hold with, with God forever. Our best day, I think, that, that, that the highest place of joy we've had, it's just a picture. It's not, it's, it doesn't even really scratch the surface on the reality of joy and pleasure and bliss and exhilaration and excitement and wonder and amazement that we're going to have forever in his presence. He created pleasure for us forever, beloved. When we're with him in his presence, oh, and all the veils are gone and the, and the, and the, the veil of time is gone and the veil of the flesh is gone and we're able to interface with God forever, we are going to be exploding in pleasure forever. The exhilaration that we're going to experience when we're with the one we were made for, it is going to be unmatched. Oh, I can't wait. 
I've got a high, I've got a high propensity to, to have adrenaline rushes and excitement. And I'm a pretty wound up kind of guy. I, I, I like things that, that, you know, get me charged up. It's nothing compared to where we're going. Oh man, it's going to be good. I can't wait. I cannot wait. We get a little glimpse. We get a little taste of it now. Oh, but fullness there. In his presence, in his presence, his fullness of joy. Pleasures evermore. Pleasures evermore. No, really, you got to just land on that verse and go, now what are you talking about? What does pleasures evermore even look like? What's that feel like? Sight, sound, audio, visual, feelable, whatever. Emotional, spiritual. I mean, just your whole being being permeated with the pleasures that come from God, from being with God. In his presence is fullness of joy. If just the area around him fills up your being with joy, what is coming off of him? <laughs> I mean, you've been around somebody, you just like to be around them, they make you feel good because they're just upbeat or happy. You're like, man, I just like being around them. They're, in their presence is Something that makes you feel good. Well, in his presence is joy at the highest possible level. He calls it joy unspeakable and full of glory. I like that mixture. Whatever that is, I want some. In his presence. And at his right hand, if you're touching him, pleasure forever. Beloved, this is what we get. This is our portion. This is our promise. This is where we're headed. Now let's just look at that place. Let's look at that place of pleasure evermore. Look at Revelation 4. See, I promise you I wasn't going to be lewd, but I'm going to be straight up on this. I'm not going to be crass. I can't stand that when preachers take a subject like this and they're just throwing in innuendo. It's like, man, bro, you need to get sanctified before you even touch that topic. Because they'll say things, it's like, that's a little off. Makes you feel creepy. Y'all know what I'm talking about. That's a pain in my heart. We've either, either stayed silent in it or we've spoke about it with an unsanctified lens that didn't even glorify God. It glorified man. Ouch. So Revelation 4, where is this place of pleasures evermore? Joy unspeakable. Let's just read it. Revelation 4, John is having an exceedingly good quiet time. Jesus appears to him, dictates seven letters to seven churches to him, and then he hears the voice of the Lord, says, come up here. He looks and immediately sees a door standing open in heaven, and he goes through the door. I've I've said, Lord, if you do that for John, could you just do it for me? I'll I'll even take the one-tenth version. If you did it for Daniel, if you did it for Moses, if you did it for Ezekiel, you could do it for me, Lord. He goes through the door and his eyes begin to behold things that humanity has rarely dreamed of. Here's what he sees. Verse 2, he says, immediately I was in a spirit. I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone, diamond-like and red and green all at once. 
in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. One minute, John has his feet on the ground. He's looking and talking to the glorified and risen Christ. The next minute, his feet are not on the ground. He has gone through a door in the heavenly realm, and he's gazing on the eternal Father, uncreated and perfect. Behold a throne set in heaven. One who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone. There's an emerald rainbow around the throne, and uh, a rainbow around the throne, and appearance as an emerald. Verse four. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders clothed in white robes. They had crowns of gold on their heads. Verse five. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Thunders, lightnings, and voices coming from the throne and seven fires burning before the throne. Jasper and Sardius coming out of the throne. Verse six, before the throne, there was a a sea of glass like crystal. In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third had the face like a man, the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. I tell you, This place is a place of matchless beauty. You and I have seen lightnings. We've heard thunderclaps. All of them natural in origin. You've never seen lightning that proceeded from the very being of God. I mean, you've seen it on a summer night when when the the heat lightning, it, it causes the whole sky to light up. It's just like a fireworks show in the sky. It's a shadow. A shadow declaring the lightnings that come from his being. You've heard thunder when, when the pressure systems have collided and it's right above your home. You ever had that happen? It feels like it's like on your roof. Boom! And your whole house shakes. Nothing. It's a shadow compared to what's rolling out of his being. You've seen the beauty of a rainbow. Right after a rain on a, on a sunny day, you know, it, it, the clouds come, it rains, and boom, the clouds move and the sun is out and the light, it... It refracts through the, the water crystals and whoosh, there's an array of colors and beauty. You, whoa, look at, you ever seen one that where it touches, both ends touch the ground? You go, whoa. But you've never seen an emerald rainbow. In fact, this rainbow isn't just an arc. It's a dome. It's all the way around the throne. It's full of all the colors and it's saturated with an emerald hue. Shining like a a beautiful stone, yet with all the colors of the rainbow. Like a dome. So there's beauty and there's sight and there's sound like you've never dreamed of. Think of the most beautiful scenery. It's a shadow compared to this. Think about the best music. Think about all the professionals in the orchestra playing after... Practice after practice after practice where the music is perfect and the voices are perfect and the choir of all the best singers. Think about that. It's a shadow compared to what's going on there. I'm telling you, 
when John hit that place, every fiber of his being was on 10. I mean, it was like he was having internal explosions because of what he was perceiving. Every cell was responding. It's a place of pleasure and beauty, unsurpassed and unmatched in all of created order, the throne room of God. It's you and I. It's our destiny. We're going there. My wife said, you know, she said, I want to go to Greece or Italy. I want to see these, you know, the waterways. And, and I said, yeah, that's cool. Maybe we'll get there in the next age. Free flying. But, but do you understand? We're going we're gonna to interface with this place in Revelation 4. I mean, I, I know the Lord has created the beauties of the earth and they declare the glory of the Lord, but something that tells me I'm going to really want to be in the throne room a lot more than looking over every, you know, valley or mountain. I want to be in that place of beauty, pleasure, glory. I want to marvel at God. So John is there. He's watching this thing. He's writing like a scribe. He's describing the scene. It's matchless in perfection. And then something strange happens. After the living creatures sing, look at verse 9. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the throne who sits, before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So here you have it, the place of perfection and beauty, perfection and pleasure, perfection in, in every perceivable way. It's glorious. It's, it's, I mean, unmatched. It's amazing. And something happens that causes it to go up a notch and these elders throw their crowns down and they fall prostrate before God. In fact, throughout the book of Revelation, you see the elders prostrating themselves before God over and over and over and over. Here's what's going on. The throne room, highest place of pleasure, highest place of beauty and ecstasy. It's, it's just how it is all the time. And then there's times where it spikes pleasure and ecstasy and beauty. So much so that these elders who are staring at the throne of God, experiencing the pleasure and beauty of the throne, at certain times they throw their crowns down and they prostrate themselves before God. Oh, man. It was real good, and boom, it got better. That's what's going on there. Now, without being crass or strange about it, I truly believe every facet of the human marital relationship speaks of our relationship with Jesus in intimacy and beauty and pleasure. The sexual relationship, beloved, I propose this, that it was to speak of the pleasures evermore and the crescendos of ecstasy that are around the throne. It was always supposed to declare of the God who brings and and releases fullness of joy and pleasures evermore. He gives us the shadow, even if it's brief and momentary, even if it's, it's just, you know, just a little bit. He gives us the shadow to declare of the beauty of that place forever. 
And because we've not declared the knowledge of God, not declared the, the, the truth of the bridal paradigm and, and not talked about sexuality, because we haven't done that, the world has stolen the narrative and made sex something perverse and dirty and ugly. But when you see sexuality as something that declares of the knowledge of God, all of a sudden, you begin to get understanding. You begin to understand sexuality in a way you hadn't understood. There's, there's a clarifying effect. For instance... Of course, sexuality is only for those who are in marital covenant because it's declaring of the glory and the beauty of that place where only those who are in covenant with the Lord are going to experience it. All of a sudden, you begin to understand why the Lord releases and, 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 and invites us into sexuality and marriage because he's trying to declare of the intimate, powerful, pleasureful, Reality we're going to have with him forever. Beloved, we've allowed this issue of sexuality to be stolen, and most people think God is boring. Instead, the Lord hardwires into our lives a sex drive so we would experience it in the confines of marriage as a declaration of the pleasure and beauty and intimacy we're going to share with him forever. I want to be clear. I'm not saying anybody's having sex with God. That's not the point. I really want to be clear on that. That's not the point. The point is, we don't understand the makeup of our God. We don't understand joy, unexpressible and full of glory, pleasures evermore. We don't understand that. And so what, because we don't understand that, we've allowed the narrative to be stolen, and most people think of sex as something that is perverse. Here's what I think. If we have a right revelation of the knowledge of God, it will bring healing and liberty in so many areas of our lives. In fact, 2 Corinthians 10 is really clear. Every stronghold is exalted against the knowledge of God. You know what that tells me? All this perversion and bondage on the sexual, uh, on the issue of sex and the sexual relationship, all the perversion and bondage on it, it's because the devil does not want sex to be a declaration of the beauty and pleasure and intimacy we're going to experience with the Lord. So he's stolen it, twisted it, and perverted it. Here's what this can do. Understanding that everything he's given us declares of who he is, it can shift everything. For the young person that's not married, they go, why do I need to wait? Because this is the most beautiful, intimate thing that you're going to experience with another human, and it's declaring what you're going to experience with God forever. Don't mess it up. Don't blow it and try to get into something, you know, before it's time, before the way that God created it to be. If you have sex before marriage, you're completely, uh, you're, you're, you're completely practicing it in a way that God never intended. Just like the pleasures around the throne are not for those who are out of covenant with God, neither is sex for those who are out of covenant with one another. This can bring healing. This can bring liberty. This can bring freedom. That we could actually, could you imagine this? We could actually get, into the, uh, get it to where we're in the church. We can actually have a conversation about sex without thinking something weird. No, really. We could actually get to where we're talking about sex in a godly and honoring way because we know it's a declaration of the knowledge of God. We could actually get freed up in it rather than bound in it. 
Because the enemy would love to silence the church on this point so he can continue to write the narrative. But I tell you, sex is not supposed to be the self-gratifying thing. Sex is supposed to be something that's beautiful, intimate, glorious, that you enter into with your spouse, that declares of the, the beautiful, intimate, and glorious relationship we'll have with God. I share this with every couple I take through premarital counseling. And I watch the revelation hit their soul. And I watch the look change on their face. And I feel the presence of the Lord come on them as they get set free from all the wrong images of what sex is about that they've been flooded with over their whole lifetime. Oh, beloved, if we only knew God, if we only knew God, then we'd understand the God who creates sex and he created it good. That he's trying to declare of himself. He's trying to declare of the beauty and the pleasure we're gonna experience with him. Oh, beloved, God is good. God is awesome. God is amazing. Let your mind get changed about who God is. I go, man, Lord, who, who are you that you would create the sex drive? Who are you? You, give, you sure give us a lot of rope to hang ourselves with. You know, the way we think is, no, don't let them do anything. Put them in a box and they won't sin. God goes, no, look, I'm going I'm to hardwire the sex drive into your soul. It's going to be physical, emotional, and spiritual. He goes, because I want people to know me. He doesn't think like we think. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. This place, the throne room of God, it's a place like you and I have never dreamed. And he gives us, even if it's just momentary, even if it's in the shadow form, even if it's just, just in a little bit, he gives us the sexual relationship to declare of the beauty the pleasure that we're going to have with him. Even if it's just a glimpse and finite, he's trying to express to us pleasures evermore. Let it be healing to you. This requires a conversation. You need to talk to your spouse about this. You need to talk to your spouse about this. You need to talk to your children about this. Let this be healing to you in your sexual relationship, in your marriage. Let it redefine some things. Of course the marriage bed is pure. Of course it's pure. Because God made it to declare of himself. When we get the knots untied, I tell you what, there will be liberty in our marriages. And so many people, they enter marriage with sexual brokenness, abuses and perversions and, and all sorts of different things but it's because we've lost the original intent for sex. It's about God. God made sex. God likes sex. Everybody's like, I'm not saying amen. <laughs> he does. He made it. He likes it. It declares of who he is. Amen, beloved. All right, let's stand. There are really good resources out there on this topic. And I want to give you one. It's a website. It's a couple who they had lots of brokenness in their life before Jesus in the area of their sexuality. And when they went to the church to get help, 
Though it was a great church, loved Jesus, they couldn't give them any help. They didn't have anything to say. And so they went on a journey for 10 years to find out how they could get healed and, and healthy and whole in their sexuality. And, and what ended up happening was they, they found out a lot of stuff. They did so much research that all of a sudden they had something to say and people started coming to them. Now for the last 25 years, they've been, mar- uh, they've been ministering to married couples uh, along this issue of sexuality. And, uh, and I really appreciate what they offer. And so their website is called themarriagebed.com. Themarriagebed.com. Christian couple in ministry. And they, I mean, they have got, I think they've got a good biblical worldview on this issue of, of sexuality. I would encourage you, use it as a resource. Use it as a resource to, to further you know, if you need some further input, it's a great, where, great place to start. All right, let's have a, a, a moment of prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, you, you made pleasures evermore. crescendos of pleasures evermore in that place of perfect beauty in that place of perfection you put crescendos where they fall down before you and everything you've given us in this age it's a shadow it speaks to the truth of who you are the beauty and the glory of your son, the pleasures that we'll experience with Jesus in intimacy forever. Lord, you gave us sexuality to declare of that. The only thing that we experience that's spiritual, emotional, physical, you're so hardwired. This issue of sexuality to our being God who creates pleasure. Now, Lord, I pray, come. Release revelation to us. Release revelation to us. And we've been bound up of this issue of sexuality where we thought it only to be something perverse or wicked. I pray, set us free. God, where we've been lured in wonder We've given ourselves to falsehood and fantasy and and perversion. God, I pray the truth of who you are would take the energy off of that that desire for improper sexual things, lusts and perversions. We would see that this is something you created. You created it good. Something you testify of the word the beauty and pleasure we'll experience with you forever something that you want to be private and held in honor but not something that you want to be shameful come Holy Spirit release light just release light on our souls
place light on our souls. God, where we need healing, I pray, release light and revelation and heal us. Change us. Let's just take a moment. Let's just worship the Lord right now over this issue. Thank you, Lord.